The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hi. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy and I'm a producer here at the II. And I'm Ben. I'm also a producer here at the II. And today we've got After Happily Ever After, featuring Academy Award nominee David Hare, critically acclaimed writer Yana Teller, and director-producer Sophie Fines. And this took place at London How the Light Gets In Festival 2022. The Philosophy Festival produced by the team here at the II. So, Ben, tell us a bit more about the debate. Well, Darcy, this was a debate which really boiled down to the idea of how art maps onto reality and vice versa. And the kind of idea that we tell stories in our lives, we impose structures on our lives, you know, we mark birthdays. We talk about endings and new beginnings and we, we use this language very commonly in our everyday vernacular. But is it really the case that, that our lives mirror this kind of story that we see in, in our sort of cultural output, in film, in TV, for instance? And a really fascinating discussion on, on the nature of that. And do you have any favourite parts of the debate? I thought they all brought something really valuable to the debate. Um each of them has a very unique perspective in terms of the artistic realm in which they work. But I, I found David's comments on the idea of binary endings um, especially pertinent. Um, his sort of intention to avoid binary endings at all costs because it simply doesn't match up with the kind of complexity that our lives face on a daily basis. It was well, good that fun. sounds incredibly interesting and it sounds like we've got a lot to look forward to. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's hand over to our host for this debate, the wonderful, the magical, the indefatigable Barry Smith. Thank you. Good evening and lovely to have you with us. So let me set out the theme for the evening and then I'll introduce you to the panel of speakers. So from Beethoven's Fifth to Batman, Harry Potter to Hamlet, we want and expect satisfying endings that tie up loose ends and provide resolution. But real life doesn't often come so neatly packaged. Relationships and careers often evolve in a tangled confusion with transitions that leave messy legacies. And as T.S. Eliot said, often things end not with a bang, but with a whimper. So is it that our stories and narratives are in error, or is it the way we run our lives? Many have sought to create novels or films that have less defined or multiple endings, but they've rarely succeeded. So is a successful non-narrative structure possible or desirable? And then again, weddings, birthdays, leaving parties, and national holidays 
Are they a means to impose order on lives that have none? Would we be better to impose more structure? Or should we accept that our lives are as fluid and in a sense unknown as the chaos of a flowing river? So with me to discuss this, on my immediate left, I've got Sophie Fines, who is a director of the groundbreaking philosophical films, The Pervert's View to Ideology, and a moving documentary that she made recently, Artificial Things. I should also tell you that uh, Sophie has produced a film for the BBC that will appear, I think, in two weeks' time on the four quartets. A film of the four of quartets. Of the four quartets, read by... Performed by performed Ray Performed by Ray Fiennes. Thank you. On my right, uh, Jan Teller is a critically acclaimed writer whose novels include Odin's Island and Come, an existential novel about ethics in art and modern life. And then on my far left, we have David Hare, who's the BAFTA-winning playwright responsible for such hits as Plenty, and more recently, Straight Line Crazy, starring Ray Fiennes. David is considered one of the finest political storytellers and playwrights we have alive today, and so we're very pleased to have him with us. His stories address often very pressing social and political issues of our times. So let's begin in the way that we intend to do by asking each of our speakers to set out their view about whether we really do want more structure in life or less structure in art, and should they reflect each other, or do we actually want to see structure in art when there is none in life? So, Jana, could I begin with you and your thoughts? I think basically life is chaotic. Uh, and yes, we use all these various events to um, create some kind of structure. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think events and traditions, it gives us a structure to deal with our emotions, our reactions. For example, burial rituals um, is a way to deal with grief or, uh, when we meet death. Um, Christianing or name giving of children is a way to celebrate a child. And I, I think those are important ways to mark changes and transitions in our lives. I think it is not an invention, but a reality that only after the end, only after death, can our story really be told. We don't know who anybody really is or the essence of somebody's life until we know when and how they died, who they were when they died. Because some people regret half their life stories or even their entire life stories and values just before dying. And that does change how we would see them. That's why it's important, for example, why you know, I'm totally against the death sentence, but it is interesting you let people say something just before they're executed because it is important do they regret their actions or not. You know, even though I hate the setup, but there's in a philosophical element to that. And the same then goes into fiction. As a novel writer, yeah, it would be great if I could just, you know, write a bit left, right, and go off. But it would be very uninteresting for others. It would be a little bit like having a conversation with no threat. Um, yes, we do jump from one issue to another when we speak to each other. Yet, 
if it shall be an interesting conversation, there has to be some kind of um, line in the conversation that leads to a conclusion. Anecdotes are fun for a little while, but you want them to add up to something. And there can be novels with no real ending that are worth reading, like Gogol's The Dead Soul of Kafka's The Castle. So are novels that petered out in the narrative sense because the writers didn't have the time or opportunity to finish them tightly, and they're still absolutely worth reading. Um, but I think that's because in most narratives, there's an arch. You start building that arch from the first page, and it only works if if it somehow follows a structure that's, it's laid out generally in the first three sentences. You can no longer change that arch if you don't get it right from the beginning. And then you can almost see where it will go. It's going high and then low dramatically. It's a long thing. But the ha it has to follow that for us to feel it. I think, though I cannot prove that, but like music has a mathematical structure in terms of harmony, uh, which if it breaks, it becomes like disharmonic for us to listen to. I do think dramatic structure has the same, that we know with the pitch in our stomach what works dramatically and what doesn't. And that somehow has to be part of a narrative to hold our attention. It can be done many different ways, but it's that kind of, of yeah, mathematical, can you say, function has to be there. Yes, you can do loads of other things that can be fun for a moment, but the narrative is important. And I think, actually, it doesn't matter if it ends with a whimper or a bang, because it depends how you define that. A whimper can also be, could be considered a sexual kind of thing. That's a different kind of ending. But we do need to know what the ending is to understand the entire story that has been told us, whether through a life, a theater play, or a novel, or which way. That's my... Thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in what you say because um, Wittgenstein, when he was talking about Freud, instead of just criticizing the view of positing unconscious thoughts and desires, he said Freud got things wrong when he talked about dreams. He always tried to find an episode in life that explained why the dream happened. And, and Wittgenstein says, that's not what we want. What we want to know is how the dream ends when we wake up. So we're, we're, we're craving that narrative structure, it seems, even, even in our waking moments. David, can I come to you next? Yeah, well, thoughts? this question has been answered by the invention of a new art form in the 21st century, and it's called long-form television. <laughs> and um, the hope of long-form television was that it was going to be like a 19th century novel and that actually you would get to know the characters and every week your knowledge of the characters would deepen. And that it, as this process went on, the work would become richer and richer. Now, I don't know about you, but I have given up watching at least four long-form series, television series, because they're all so boring, because they endlessly reiterate the same question. Line of Duty began magnificently, very fascinating. It invented a new kind of interrogation scene. And then by the first time they did it, great. The second time they did it, less great. The third time they did it, you're screaming to get out of the room. I don't care who H is. I don't think the author knows who H is. He's just stringing it along because the idea is meant to be that this series is meant to go on forever and that a lot of people watch. And so the BBC controllers are saying, can you please string this out? 
And that is what essentially long-form television is. It's stringing out ideas that go on and on and on. The other ones I've stopped watching are The Crown. I got the idea, soap opera, royal family, got it, okay. <laughs> One series is enough to knock that idea on the head. You don't need to watch any more of that. Ozark, the family are apparently middle-class bourgeois people, but they're also psychopaths and they kill, okay? I got it, I got it. <laughs> I got it after two series, I got it after three series, after four series, again, I'm screaming, it's enough. The same ideas are being endlessly rotated. Succession began, brilliantly original, you know, it's very, very witty, it's got some of the best writing on television. However, how many times can Brian Cox tell somebody to fuck off? If he does it again, I can't stand it. Please stop, you know? And also, I don't believe it. I don't believe there is anybody like Logan Roy who goes around and puts their face approximately three inches from somebody else's face and says, fuck off. I just, I just don't know anyone who does that. Maybe you in your richer lives have met people like that. <laughs> I haven't met anyone like that. I'm bored with succession and it's dwindling. And so you think of even the greatest television series and the ones that I'm fondest of, in other words, I'm a, I was a fan of Mad Men. I was a tremendous fan of High Mat, which is the German series Homeland, which is one of the greatest television series made. But even the greatest fan of those series would say, that the end does not have the same intensity as the beginning because they were spun out for so long. The only exception to the rule, you might argue, is The Sopranos, the only one that works like a 19th century novel and goes on endlessly reinventing the characters and finding more richness in the characters over, I believe it's over 100 hours, isn't it? Um, that I do believe. But most people during these series are screaming for an ending. They want an ending because they want a sense of conclusion. Now, I'm asked to do a lot of literary novels and adapt literary novels, and the first thing I ask is, what is the ending going to be? Because by and large, people who go to the cinema leave the cinema remembering the ending, not remembering the beginning. All films begin well. I've barely seen a film that doesn't begin well. The first half hour is always entertaining. The second hour is usually a little less entertaining. And then by the last part, you're again going, oh my goodness. And so all I ask when I'm given a book is, does this have a good ending? And the only choice about the ending that I like is please let it not be binary. In other words, I am not, I don't want to adapt any book in which the question is, will she marry him or won't she? Will, will the guy get the job or won't he? Will the wave wipe out the town, or will the town avoid the wave? If there anything which has a binary, a moment in the road at which there are two choices, is something that I am trying to avoid at all possible costs. Because it is untrue to most human experience that such things happen. And anyway, those binary films in which he either does or doesn't get the girl, or the girl does or doesn't get the job, piss half the audience off because they want the other thing from the, from the half. The most famous ending in history, which we all know as film fans, is Casablanca. Casablanca is an improvised ending where Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman and Conrad Veidt had no idea which way it was going to end. So it had a binary ending, and they discussed at great length how it would go. And then they invented the most magnificent cheat in film history, which is a speech 
in which Humphrey Bogart has to say, anyone can see that the problems of two people don't add up to a hill of beans in this crazy world. In other words, those of you who've been watching this film for the last hour and a quarter, hour and a half, and wondering about whether Ingrid Bergen is going to end up with me or Conrad Veidt, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have worried about this in the first place. Now, that is a magnificent solution to the binary problem, but having said that, it is also a magnificent cheat. And it's only because it's so incredibly well-written that people don't notice that it is a cheat. So endings are, well, I'm going to quote Sandy McKendrick, because Alexander McKendrick was not only the great film director who made Sweet Smell of Success, and therefore is one of the greatest directors who ever lived, he was also the pioneer of film teaching. And he said the most profound thing about endings of anyone I know, and it was one of his rules for screenwriters, and he said, all the time I meet people who say, I've got a very good beginning, but I haven't yet got the end. He said, they're wrong. They haven't got a good beginning. Thank you. Girl, what a, you're a very hard act to follow, David. I feel really <laughs> but we're anxious But we're now. going to invite you to do it nonetheless, so please. <laughs> That's what I say. Have you seen Shameless? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm amazed how much of this television you've watched, because I, I don't have the time. I, I can't find the time. But I'm, I'm going to speak from the position of a documentarian as a documentary filmmaker, because, of course, you know, you're going into the field of the world, of people's lives, of situations, where you, you, you know that what you, the footage that you create is not going to be the end. There isn't an end. You know, so you've got to find a way to make an ending in a situation that's ongoing. So there is a sense of filming and you say, well, that I forgot, I've got an end now. Now I can actually make the film. And, and that is the truth of it, because, I mean, the end is, is it's got to happen. And it's, the end is a fascinating metaphor as well. It's more than just the end of the film. And one of the things I was going to thinking about is like war and peace. And the moment when Prince Andre lies on the ground and he thinks he's dead, or we think he's dead, and it's, it's almost, the, be the end is almost somewhere in the, in the beginning. It's planted. It's an extraordinary moment. So, you know, endings do kind of echo, echo death in many ways. Um, and so they are crucial. I was thinking about endings that I'd enjoyed um, and in documentaries. And I don't know if any, anyone saw Frederick Wiseman's film about the New York Public Library called Ex Libris. He has a beautifully crafted ending, which is very subtle, but really has this kind of pulsating question at the end of it. And it's that, what you, picking up on what you said about death, it's, it's so true that the death of a person makes their life clear in a way that doesn't seem to, the, the, the story of the life doesn't fall into place until there is the death. So I, as a documentarian, are trying to just I, don't, I see myself as creating a document in a certain moment of a life, Grace Jones's life, um, and it's going to go on, or you know, the, the world of the films is, gonna, is going to go on, and what's that, where does that sit? It's a question for me, it's quite an interesting one. Yeah. Where will this moment of documentation sit within that world or that life? So, yeah, endings do preoccupy those of us who work in making films, music to theatre... They're, they're crucial. So I don't want to, I want the, the conversation to go on. I don't want to start speaking in banalities. 
So, bye, please. This, this is really helpful uh, to sort of set out some of the pieces that we need to explore. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the fact that, Jan, and it surprised me, you have a very sort of Greek conception, you know, of the life, that the life is estimated at the end of the life, that you can only then evaluate, not, not in the middle, not before, and, and, you know, call no man happy till he's dead. That's the idea that we, we get the whole thing. And yet, and yet, um, I'm thinking of Chekhov short stories where nothing much happens. You, you, there's a, a long, dry path. There are some cherry trees. There's, there's, there's a woman in a rocking chair. She's looking down the road. Maybe someone will come. A few things happen and nothing much happens and it ends. But somehow you know exactly how their lives are going to be, how they've always been and how they're going to be. So in some sense, you don't even need an ending. You need the sense of the life suggested by a slice of it, maybe. And I wonder whether, if we can talk about uh, documentary making, it's not necessarily about ending the subject, but it's framing it in some way yeah. that allows us to go on dwelling on it, thinking yes. about it, moving with it somewhere. Yes. So, so maybe an ending doesn't have to be a dramatic ending like the whole of the life. Maybe yes. you can think of, how do I put artificial boundaries around this topic that yes. satisfy us as viewers? Something like that? Yes, I think you know, you, you, you're setting up a series of questions. You're engaging in the cognition of the viewer, of the audience. And, it's, and, and you need to take them somewhere and into spaces, because uh, we exist in space. I mean, it, this is crucial to filmmaking. And in fact, that's one of the things that gets sacrificed a lot, is actually the sense of space, because everything's become so kinetic. But you know, these details are really important in the telling of a story, in storytelling. But it's, it doesn't need to be a grand ending. No, but I'm, I'm, I'm now, I want to move to the first theme, because I think it will, especially the two of you who are trying to create some sort of verisimilitude somewhere. I mean, truth telling uh, to life in your characters or in the, the narrative that you set out. And I wonder whether, how do you do that if we know that life just doesn't have that structure? So for example, I'll probably you know, go home, see my partner. She'll say, how was your day? And I won't tell her every bit of it because that'd be really boring. I'll say, well, I was setting off on a plane trip from Belfast, wondering if I would get here. And then, and then I tell her what happens and I add detail. It's a story, but it's very artificial to the way the day actually worked. It was one damn thing after another. So I'm wondering whether you can both still capture something of the, the feel of reality, of the messiness, of the unsettledness, while still satisfying your urge to have an ending. So let, let's start with Jana, and then um, I want to hear from David. Well, it's interesting oh. what you say about Chekhov, because <laughs> the lady with the little so. dog is the most devastating short story, and it is the most devastating short story because he says this is not an ending, it's a beginning. And, you know, two people fall in love. That's all that happens in um, Lady with a Little Dog. And then they go and sit and they think about what will be involved in being in love. And so it's a brilliant way of saying what an ending is, which is a beginning. Yeah. And actually, he says, the whole of life now lies ahead of them, and absolutely nothing has happened in that room. Yeah. And, and that the ending was not an ending, it's the beginning. And how you get that air into an ending is, you know, nobody has ever done it better than Chekhov. I, I, I think that's right. But he seems very interested in moments where a life is going to now change course. 
You know, the, the Kiss is another example of a short story. A young, shy officer goes into a darkened room. He hears the swish of the, the dress coming across, smells the perfume. He's kissed. It wasn't meant for him, but he's kissed. And his life is utterly changed from that moment. And I wonder if something in the middle of a life is as important as always thinking we have to reach the end or know how it turns out. I mean, again, it depends. I think in, in fiction, we have the luck that you can define how much of a narrative you will tell and still make that structure from beginning to end that as a, even in a, in a story where nothing much happened, if you set that out from the first sentence you set a mood, like exactly when you play a melody, uh, you also somehow, if you're at least the creator, you will somehow know where it ends, even if you can't say exactly in words or formulate it. But if you don't have that sensation inside where, where it will end, it won't go well. I mean, I've started novels, like, you know, that I really thought had a brilliant beginning, but I couldn't go beyond a certain number of pages because I think I didn't know well enough where they were going. And then you don't, it just doesn't go anywhere. Where, and with that, I don't say I don't ever plot out where I'm going. It's a question of having, you know, a feeling for the different characters. And that's somehow that voice of the narration that will take me somewhere. It's, it's almost like, I mean, a kind of way of breathing that goes into that, the first few sentence structures, and they will show you the way. And also, you might don't know. You might want to write a novel about something, and then you realize, no, this sentence structure can only be a short story yeah. because it's about maybe uh, some important turning point or an observation. I like you to write short stories, but they're very different from novels. Novels take a whole universe in and can have a whole big philosophy. Short stories much more about. Just yeah, slight changes yeah, in the perception maybe of reality is enough to carry a short story. Um, and that's because yeah, you come home from where you have a story to tell someone because something changed the way you saw something or how you experienced it. That's a story in itself. Um, and so I just want to get also into this thing of, of chaos that I'm a great believer in looking for the axis of something rather than the actual anecdote is a floating thing of the story. But if you have a philosophical underlying you know, value system, you have an anchor, and stories can go pretty wild around that anchor and yet still be structure, you know, something that's still worth reading. If you think also of Musil, the, yep. what is it called in English? The uh, man, man without, without qualities. qualities. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant, but nothing much happens except that man again who sits and thinks yeah. about what he could do and he never really does anything. And it has no real ending, it wasn't written to the final end. But it's brilliant and we all kind of can get that sense of what he's telling us, just as it is. So, so I'm, 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 I'm really interested in that. I want to come back and have you think about Kafka's castle, which has a, an ending that never seems to come and yeah. drives us crazy. But, but, but first I want to ask David, you said before you start, think of the finish. You know, have have in mind where you're going and and how bounded it is. So so is the verisimilitude to life in 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 your playwriting about knowing where you want to get the characters, but how plausibly can they get there? How realistic is it 
to get it's them It's not there. as calculated as that. It's mystical, and I know it annoys everybody, <laughs> uh, particularly at a philosophy festival, that um, art is mystical. Uh, but the imagination doesn't really obey the rules. Um, but there is a, I call it landing your planes. In other words, what I talk about is um, circling Heathrow and then landing my planes, meaning that I've got to get my planes back into the airport at the end. It's very easy getting the plane up in the air. Anyone can do that. Landing a plane is really difficult, and that's where the skill is. But there is also a mystical sense which overtakes you, which is what you're talking about in any story. When you start telling the story, the first half feels deeply creative while you're working on the first half. While you're working on the second half, you have a mystical feeling that it already exists. The, the clearest way of putting this is to say that an idea has a destiny. And at, after, at a certain point, it is your job to uncover the destiny. So you feel more like an archaeologist. You just feel, well, it's, a, it's there, it's under the ground, and if I just patiently uncover it with a little spoon moving the earth, uh, the idea will be there, and it will land in the way that I want it to. And so the second half of writing anything is essentially the job of fulfilling what you feel the destiny of the idea is. And I, I know this sounds mystical, and I know it sounds um, alarming to people who don't believe in the imagination. But you're not in control of your own imagination. Your imagination is in control of you, if you're any kind of writer at all. And so given that, you just have to let your imagination guide you in. So I don't think of it in any kind of technical way. I don't think of it in any kind of jiggery-pokery way of a bit, little bit more of this and a little bit more of that. Either the imagination is guiding me in, or it's not. And um, I, I, I try not to get into any situation <laughs> in which I can't find the ending, because I, the ending is all that matters. I think this is a lovely metaphor. I imagine you as a sort of frantic air traffic controller in a very high wind, it's wondering true. if you're going to bring it's those true. planes down. I mean, often when I'm watching something on television, then I will, I will turn to my wife and say, they can't land their planes. Yeah, they can't, Look, yeah. They're stuck in the air and they can't they land can't, their planes. Yeah. Or they will crash land their planes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I yeah. read a script yesterday where the plane's going along and then they crash land it in the last 15 yeah. minutes. And you just go, you haven't prepared for that. Yeah. And a crash landing is not going to, it's going to displease yeah. people. Yeah. Drops you've onto to, the tarmac. You, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you've got, to be, you've got to be ready for that movement yeah. in. Yeah. And all that is musical. Yeah. And that's what writing's about. Yeah. So. That, I love the metaphor, and I think that's really helpful. Um, even though you said you weren't going to explain it, that's done a lot of explaining to, to me of how you wrestle with the imagination, at least, to produce a finished work of art. But I want to come back to the idea of um, a, a more open form. And if we, if we, second of our themes is wondering whether we should try to be less uh, narrative and less structured. I mean, some documentaries maybe do work by showing, showing not saying, how chaotic some things might be, how disjointed some people's lives are and the conditions of their lives are. And, and you want, I mean, I, I want to make a conceptual distinction between the end of the viewing of the program and the end of the content, because, you know, you will have to bring the program to an end. And, and, and I noticed that a lot of documentary makers find a fantastic piece of music which sort of bookends it, you know? Yeah. You could have been dealing with something 
awfully painful and difficult and then the end with walking back to happiness and you just yeah. feel well, struck. I think, I think the thing that I mean I'm a sort of outsider really in the terms of the documentary world because you know I, I kind of don't get involved in being t told that you know documentaries have got to sort of fit the structures of fiction yeah. that because they're not you can't force those plots on them um, and it's a frustration you know that I, I just can't deal with uh, and it's it's often me you lose the all the texture and all the layers documentaries for me often live through the kind of layers of ideas that are inherent to the subject but in terms of writing fiction um and thinking about character is very different um to you know like the, the, for instance making you know the this film of the four quartets which mm. is a poem um, and there's lots talked about and written in academia about what did he mean by quartets and he said that he'd listened to the late Beethoven quartets and that was what inspired him. He wanted to make something that could have the, sort of ex create the experience of the music as he heard it of the late Beethoven quartets. So the four quartets, they have a similar structure, each one, and the, some people have, one, one particular writer suggested that in fact each quartet was like one instrument within the whole and that they were it was as if each instrument was playing separately across mm. each quartet mm. and so you discover all these amazing kind of uh, you know beautiful forms of of the, within the poem which have been fascinating to excavate so i i don't have to think about the character and getting from a to b and these things because i'm actually thinking about descriptive passages and then the transitions to the more philosophical reflective moments to then the lyric passages and so how then to frame those in what proximity um, there are so many edits already within the poems writing not least then also the lighting so then you know it's it's a different engagement with 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 uh, with form and narrative um, and there are many stories that he, there are many moments that he conjures within it. And there's different pace in some of the sequences of lines. And there's repetition. And yeah, there's, repetition yeah. isn't because that's yeah. also part of how music works. Yeah. So yeah. he's playing with with yeah. that idea and the, and the recurrence of our experience of time of moments that yeah. recur. So and he, I'm really, and I think we all are, really looking forward to, to, to seeing this. And it's in two weeks' time, so we won't have to wait yeah, well, so long. It's, just, it's, it's a document of what was on the stage that I felt really deserved to be documented. Sure, surely does. And, surely and, does. and so, because so many people missed it, and, it's, and it, the poem is extraordinary. The poem is the star of the piece, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's an amazing, yeah. extraordinary... I know you don't like it. Eliot's poetry you said earlier. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but, no, but, but, but let's... It's his last, though. It is his ending, isn't it? it what is I mean his, is, does is he ever write ending. anything again? Is that the last work he wrote? Uh, it's not the last no. work he wrote, but it's certainly it's the the considered the last, work. yes. The, and it is all about it is endings. His ending. it, it is, is his ending. It, you know, in yeah. my beginning is my yeah. end, in my end yeah. is my beginning. Yeah. It's all about yeah. dealing with time, and that's also kind of fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and he's using his philosophical work on Bradley to think about time, not in a linear order, but yeah. repeated or, or reversed and so on. But I, I want to come back to see if I can tempt you to challenge something that Jana and, and David are saying, because you know, that we, we, we're more, made more comfortable, like, like the viewer watching the plane coming in, if we know it's going to land, it's going to be, we know where we're going. Sometimes, isn't it true, and I'll confess my TV watching, 
Storyville, this fantastic strand that's on BBC where they take documentaries from all over the world. And I trust them now. And I sometimes start watching something which doesn't hold any interest for me, but they lead me by the hand and I don't know where I'm going. And by goodness, by the end of it, I think, wow, that was fascinating. And there's something about the documentary surprising well, you're not you. in control not in you're control. not in control in fact funnily enough the film i made with grace jones over 12 years when we got to do the q a and someone said so grace why did you let sophie take control you know of of your life and she looked at me and i we looked at each other and like control <laughs> control yeah control we weren't in control of anything <laughs> you know we were just there responding and or i was responding to her what she was having where she was and we weren't in control and i love that about documentary because you it's you have to kind of respond it's also kind of has its own mystical you know moments of where it's a bit like fishing where something's happening and you're filming it and then you know that it's like kind of loaded and it, when you get into the edit and you you kind of analyze it you realize that it's because um you know there's more than one thing happening and it always reminds me of me i met this guy who said when i said he was actually he's a writer called philip bobbitt and writes about and he i it was when there was the second war in iraq and i said you know, why is, why, why is there this preemptive war in Iraq? What's the reason? And he says, Sophie, there's never one reason to go to war. Let me give you five. Yeah. And it's a bit like, I always think that with an edit, it's like, well, you know, that, that material is important. There's not one reason. Let me give you five. And, and I wonder uh, from David and Yana whether you're also, you know, when you're not in the creating mode, but in the viewing mode, whether you like that experience of, the sort of the random walk, the ambling, being taken somewhere you didn't know you were going and then finding it fascinating. Does it appeal? Well, you're misrepresenting what I said. I didn't say that the audience should know where I was going. I said I should know where I was going. Fair which point. Which is slightly different. <laughs> yeah, fair point. Uh, and so it isn't that I was saying, oh, it's a I always like a nice, safe, predictable ending if, that the audience can foresee. I don't mean that. Uh, but I mean, I mean that all fiction is essentially about the control of information and the degree at which you release information and how painlessly or painfully you release information. In other words, the whole art of screenwriting, I mean, more than anything, is to give information without seeming to give the pain of giving information. So all the time you're telling people things, but you're hoping they're not noticing they're being told things. As soon as somebody has a map and a board and a um, a pointer and says, you know, the Viet Cong are advancing south, you know the audience is not going to listen. Somehow you've got to smuggle information into what you're doing. And so that means that power is always when people don't really know what's going on. You will notice in thrillers, most thrillers are very, very enjoyable as long as you don't know what's happening. When you find out what is happening, it's usually quite disappointing. Oh, she was abused as a child. Oh, he's got his mother in the cellar. Oh, you know, oh, he murdered her and then he changed things. You know, it's actually, most thrillers are pretty disappointing in that last 20 pages, whereas they're intriguing when you don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So the whole art of ending things is somehow not to disappoint with what it is at the end. Glenda Jackson and Nicole Williamson were in Dundee Rep in the 1960s and they were trying to do high art. They were trying to do The Dance of Death and Hedda Gabler and all these major plays. And the director of the Dundee Rep said, you have to do um, an Agatha Christie because 
you just have to give the audience an Agatha Christie. And Nicol Williamson decided that the only way to do an Agatha Christie was to make the murderer different every night. So that, in other words, they did Spider's Web or something like that. And they improvised so that Nicol Williamson, who was playing the detective, would choose a different actor every night and turn to them and said, you killed the colonel, you know, didn't you? To which the actor had to reply yes and then invent a reason whereby he might have. And one of the things that the Dundee audience, nobody in the Dundee audience ever objected. In other words, everybody just went, oh, okay, tonight it's so-and-so, you know? Because actually, it doesn't matter how it Agatha Christie ends because the stakes are so low. Who cares who killed so-and-so? It, it sort of doesn't matter very much. The pleasure in an Agatha Christie is in all the bit where you don't know. The bit where Hercule Poirot draws everyone into the drawing room is incredibly boring. And so that, technically, as a writer, is what you're trying to avoid. The lottery of an ending seeming completely arbitrary, as an Agatha Christie ending seems arbitrary. You've just, you've just given me another metaphor for academic philosophy. You know, why are they so invested in this? Because so little hangs on it, is usually yes. the, uh, the remark. That's exactly but right. That's, that's... And, and if the stakes are very, very high, yeah. if you can get the stakes very, very high, the audience will care deeply about how it ends. How it ends. And the higher the stakes, the more important the ending is going to be. Yeah, I want to, thank you, I want to, I don't know whether you want to comment on that, but I wanted to move you to our third theme. And that's whether there's also space to deal with lives that are not so uh, narratable. You know, there, there are people who, for whatever reason of their history or their, you know, their circumstances or their politics, have chaotic lives, chaotic. It's like if you ask them to explain how they got to where they did, there would be a chaotic narrative. It wouldn't actually be really very sensible. Look at, look at some of our political figures. Look at our recent political figures like Johnson or Trump or Liz Truss. I mean, it may be that there's not such an easily told story. Maybe they are pulled by forces and have reasons to go wherever they have to go. And we can't quite capture them. So, so should fiction still try to capture people whose mental life and whose drives and whose, whose subsequent behavior is just not as neat and predictable as the author or narrator would like. Yeah, I mean, I think fiction, if it has any role, it is to reflect anything in human lives that happens, anything we can tell. So, of course, we should capture all kinds of characters. I do think it's an interesting to say some of these characters that might not seem easy to narrate. I think it's because if we look at what are their success criteria, they aren't anchored in some clear values, how we normally understand values. They're anchored in wanting to get into positions of power or fame or whatever their aim is, and then they will do anything to get there. So that looks chaotic maybe from the outside. It isn't if one looks at their actual aim. And I think, fortunately, that kind of, of character, those characteristics, are what is being promoted a lot through our modern media, where nowadays the only criteria that measures your sense of existence is fame, 
is through the eyes of the other, how many eyes of the other look at you, give you likes or whatever in social media if you're the influencer. And so it's measured through that, not through the quality of the substance of who you are or what you do. And therefore, more and more lives or people will live lives that look healthy because we can't anchor them in core values. But it doesn't mean there isn't a narrative. We just have to focus on what steered them. Then we will see that narrative. And you know, I want to pick up also on what Sophie was talking about this when you're in your editing room and you see then things very differently from when you film. Other filmmakers have told me that where they feel their story actually comes together is in the editing room. It's where you cut. I mean, these you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of films, I'm sure you have for every project, down to something that's watchable. That's where your narrative is. As a novelist, it's a bit different. It differs. Sometimes I don't write much more than the actual end novel is. Sometimes I do end up throwing a lot away. But we don't tell, actually, half or even a tenth or a fraction of the story that is there. That takes place in the recipient's imagination. You give enough pieces of, you can say, the road that is to be taken that the recipient can imagine it. Because otherwise, yeah, there would be so many words that it's impossible. You can't sit and follow that. So you, you give pieces all the time. But I think also that's where storytelling becomes interesting, is that the recipient has to lend his own imagination for the story to come alive. And where it gets boring, which are those, yeah, the endless TV series or predictable novels, it's exactly because you don't have to lend your own imagination to what is happening. It is put on a plate in front of you. From the first part of the story, you can see the end, because on that I also agree with you, David. It's, that you can see the end as the narrator or can feel it. The reader or recipient shouldn't be able to do that before they get there. Um, or you have done something wrong. You, it's, you somehow banalize your own storytelling. Um, and it can be fine for certain entertainment, soap opera. Most reality TV is actually utterly predictable because we know we have to have some animosity between certain characters and if isn't there, it'll be created, then it has to be resolved and recreated. We have to have the bad and the good guys. And so, but what is predictable very quickly is very boring. But, but at the same time, complete unpredictability in a character is very disturbing and very hard to follow. Yes, but that's two very different things because actually, if you look at most you can say genre writing. Um, their characters often do change a bit and do things that are illogical if you were going into a deeper psychological analysis of them, but they fit the plot structure. Yeah. But that's what makes the story boring from a philosophical point of view because no human beings would act like this and that if follows a plot like a Monopoly game. And that, that's where the predictable structure is. But the human nature is interesting when there's, you can say, yeah, there's a logic to the character. And the logic doesn't mean that everything fits together as a diagram. It means that somehow, if you put yourself in this person's shoes, in a serious way, forgetting who you are yourself, but emotionally put yourself in their shoes, you would have the same reactions. 
you would cry there. Even if you put yourself in the shoes of a murderer, or a heinous person, but you can see he's angry and vengeful for this and that. And oh, you can actually see it. So here he would do something. As a writer, therefore, also your characters often will do things that you don't want them to do. You don't like it. It's not like a strange tale that, that fictional characters have their own lives. They, they do it. Of course, I'm still the writer. Or, uh, but if it shall work in a serious, good way, you have to allow them to, to follow their characteristics. Yeah. Also, when I, in my head as a writer, don't like where, where they go. But living myself into the character, I know this is where he has to go. Okay, and then... I, I think that's very it. helpful because I've, David was saying it. I hope I got it right. And, and, and you were saying it. I, and you hear many writers say this, that you just have to go where the characters will go. I mean, almost like the, the, the remarks that sculptors used to make about, you know, the stone will afford me that... that that shape or not, it's in there. I just have to be responsive to it. So, so you're, you're, you're following. And I, I'm going to say something. Can I say this on to the audience? Probably even beyond. I, I do believe that Iris Murdoch is a better philosopher than she was a novelist, because I think you could see the control of the characters. You could see what she was trying to make them do and go through to achieve a certain dilemma or moral situation. In a way, she was much more free in philosophy to talk about the the fact that we had to imagine people in all of their chaos and all of their limitless uh, difference from us. So I think sometimes it's, it's that difference that you're allowing your characters to have from you, you feel responsive to, that's part of the really creative thing. Perhaps that's part of the flying the plane. May, may I also just add that I think that's where the difference also is between Sartre and Camus. Camus is so much better, Albert Camus, so much better as a novelist uh, than Sartre was, though as philosophers I wouldn't know, you know, who is better. But Sartre tried to put a very clear idea into his novels. <laughs> yeah, that's what I call that like wearing your underpants outside your trousers. Yeah, exactly. Like John Major, so, <laughs> kind of, you know, it's um, like too visible. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So our beginnings don't know our endings except at how the light gets in, where the musicians finally closed everything off for us. But just before we go and throttle them, um, could we please join together in thanking our speakers, David Hare, Sophie Fines, Teller. Thank you. Well, I think we can all agree that that was a very interesting debate. Yeah, it certainly was a great insight into how artists view their work in relationship to the world. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. And if you did enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.